Good evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're diving back into Paul's section on love where he describes what love is and what love does. He's given the Corinthian believers and us a benchmark, a standard by which we may test ourselves to see how we're doing. Love is indeed a defining mark of true believers. That's why Jesus said himself that it's by our love that the world will know that we are his disciples. Love is the very essence of who God is, as John tells us in his first letter. Love is what binds the church of Christ together in harmony, as Paul says in Colossians. Love is what makes us effective, makes us winsome, makes our message attractive to the world. And so what is love? Well, let's begin by reading again our text, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is Christ's word to you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would indeed hear our prayers tonight, that you would make us a more loving people. Peel away the layers of sin that remain, the layers of self-centeredness, the layers of of arrogance and pride and rudeness, make us a sacrificial people, a considerate people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. By way of review, last week we finished verse 4, looking at the sin of pride. Paul says that love does not boast, and it is not arrogant. We saw that these two things are connected, boasting being the fruit, arrogance of heart being the root Bragging about yourself and your accomplishments is what necessarily overflows from a heart that is puffed up and is proud. We also saw that pride has certain consequences. Pride gives with it a false sense of safety, a false sense of security. We mentioned the Edomites from the book of Obadiah as an example of someone who thought that they were safe in their pride, but God brings them low. And what flowed from that was our second point, that pride makes God your enemy. The Bible speaks very clearly to say that pride doesn't bring some vague consequences, but it makes God personally your enemy. He opposes the proud. 
And we pointed to a third fruit of pride that it brings terrible judgment. Pride merits for itself God's white-hot, holy wrath and judgment, culminating with an eternal appointment in hell, the likes of which Sodom and Gomorrah were just foretaste. But we also remember that Scripture offers us all a way of escape, and that is Christ. Christ has absorbed the wrath and the judgment for those that trust in Him. Those that humbly cling to Him by faith are spared this eternal judgment and instead given the reward earned by the truly humble one. The wicked are spared, but they're not only spared, they're also treated as though they were righteous because the righteous one was not spared in our place. That's the glorious exchange of the gospel. And tonight I'd like to continue into verse 5 and look at some more fruit of pride and corresponding fruit of humility. And in verse 5 we read that love is not rude. It is not rude. Rudeness is a fruit of pride. We've all seen it. We all know it, even if it's sometimes hard to define. We know it when we see it. Somebody pulling out in front of us in traffic. Somebody cutting us off in the middle of a sentence. We know what rudeness is. But have you ever spent time to think about the category of rudeness, rude behavior? What exactly makes something rude? Is it a universal standard, transcending time and place and culture and society? Or is it tied to a specific context, a specific culture and setting? I find it interesting that rudeness assumes a category of behaviors which are agreed upon within a society, but are not necessarily moral law. That is absolute all the time, everywhere. So something might be considered rude here in South Alabama, but be perfectly acceptable in South Africa, and therefore not necessarily sinful there. Likewise, wearing your shoes in someone's house might be okay here, but in, Jap in Japan, that might be utterly offensive and therefore sinful, at least potentially sinful. And so it's good for us to see that there exists within Paul's mind, and should exist within our minds, some category of behavior which we ought to be mindful of. And as long as those culturally expected behaviors are consistent with Scripture, then we ought to conform out of love. Scripture is our final standard. It's the last say. But as long as some custom is not contrary to Scripture, then we ought to conform in love. So let me give us an example. Nothing in Scripture commands that a man should hold a door open for a woman to go first into a building. It's a custom. But that custom is consistent with God's design for men and women. It's a way for man to show deference to a woman who, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, she's man's glory. And by holding the door for her, man shows honor to her as the weaker vessel, to use Peter's language. And so because that custom is consistent with many biblical principles, for us to reject that custom and refuse to hold the door for that woman is for us to be rude, at least to reject it without good reason, and to therefore be unloving. And so I hope it's helpful for us to see this connection between custom, cultural expectations on the one hand, and absolute moral law, the command to love on the other. To understand rudeness, we need to know the difference between these, and we need to be sensitive to our setting. So back to rudeness as a category. The word that Paul uses here is for something that's offensive to decorum, something that's inappropriate, unseemly, 
unconcerned with being civilized, with what is proper. And that certainly includes poor manners. It's probably what everybody thinks about, someone that is tactless. But it is larger than that. See, a rude person may be rude in how he speaks. He or she may be crude in their words. They may be joking about things which are unseemly, juvenile. You might simply try and justify it. Well, that's just locker room talk. That's just how guys talk, man talk. But it's often sinful. Ephesians 5, 4, Paul says, Let no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking be in your mouths, which are out of place, which means they're inappropriate. They're rude. There are certain words, certain topics, which ought not be joked about by believers. If you're not sure whether a word or a topic is acceptable, one general rule of thumb, children, this is helpful, ask your grandmother. She's generally a good guide as to what is appropriate and what is not. And if she's not around to ask whether or not you can say this word, then wisdom would usually dictate, then don't say it. God has given you a sufficient vocabulary to speak in a way that honors Him. And if you're unsure, if you're on the fence about whether I can use this word or not, wisdom usually dictates to stay silent. But it's not merely the content of what a rude person says, as if the words alone. It's also the manner in which we speak is often rude. For example, Proverbs speaks about the timing of our speech as indicative of whether or not we are a fool. Proverbs 27, 14, Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. That means that a fool might come to your house and bless your name, speaking wonderful words of encouragement and praise, but he does it at the crack of dawn. And for most of us, that would not be received as a blessing in that moment. In fact, it would be the opposite, because he's being rude. He's inconsiderate to show up at dawn. Love knows that we're called not merely to avoid filthy words and coarse jesting, but that we're also called to consider the timing of our words that we choose to use. The rude person is unconcerned with timing, usually because he is impulsive. He often blasts off as soon as he has a stray thought. He, he calls or he texts or he bangs on your door immediately without giving a second thought to what time it is or what the other person might be doing, whether or not it's a good time. But love is not so. Calvin says it this way, which I like. He says, love does not bluster, but instead observes moderation. He observes moderation rather than blustering, which is to say love moderate. It throttles back on impulsivity in order to consider others. But there's other ways that rudeness might express itself. For example, we could look at how we dress. Sometimes a person might be considered rude because how they dress themselves. Might be in a clearly flamboyant, flashy way or a certain hairstyle that in a certain setting is offensive or in a clearly immodest way that is inappropriate, or a way that just attracts attention to me when the attention shouldn't be on you. If I wore a rainbow-colored suit to someone's funeral, that would probably be offensive to the family. It's not a day to look at me. If you wore a white dress to someone else's wedding, that's usually not a good thing. Nor is a swimsuit appropriate to wear at a wedding. So we have to know what we're doing, what we're wearing, and how it communicates itself. Sometimes a, a rude person is offensive because they're not considerate of what is appropriate. 
They don't give forethought. They don't use their imagination to think, if I do this, these would be the consequences in the people around me. They're unconcerned with what impact their dress might have on others. They don't care about the weaker brother and how he might stumble. They don't care because they're unconcerned. They're inconsiderate. In fact, that's a good way to transition to the opposite of rudeness. Some people think that rudeness is a sin. Okay, I get that. So it must be politeness that is the corresponding virtue. Is that right? As if Paul is simply saying, y'all use your manners. Mind your manners. Say please and thank you. Use the right fork at the right time. Tuck in your shirt. Don't wear a hat inside. As if that's all Paul is saying. Paul is not commending to us simple um, manners. Love demands that we do more than simply use the right fork and say the appropriate polite niceties. Be assured there are plenty of well-mannered, genteel, proper gentlemen and gentlewomen in hell right now. Manners alone do not necessarily demonstrate genuine love. Rather, love is not rude because love is considerate. Love is considerate. That's the positive virtue behind the prohibition of rudeness. We put off rudeness not simply to put on right manners, but to put on consideration, loving consideration. The rude person is rude because he is proud, he is arrogant, he's concerned only with himself, but the humble, the humble man and woman are considerate of others around them. So that means rather than speaking crudely, using filthy speech, coarse jesting, a, a considerate person, a loving person will weigh their words. They will use them wisely and they will only use speech which is good for building up. Paul says in Ephesians 4, let no corrupting talk comes out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. We're to use words that build up to give grace to others. That's a much higher standard than saying please and thank you. Are people given grace by your words? Are people encouraged by your words? Are they spurred on in their faith? Are they bolstered? Are they strengthened? Are they picked up when they're, when they're low by the words that you use? That's a much higher standard than simply saying please and thank you and avoiding a whole list of four-letter words. It would be much, much, much easier if Paul had just said, okay, here's a list of things you don't say, and here's a list of things you must say. But he doesn't do that, because the bar of love is much higher than a list. I'm supposed to impart grace with the words that I choose. Further, rudeness is inconsiderate of timing, as our comical proverb mentioned, but love instead chooses to speak at a time which is considerate. It speaks at an apt time. Proverbs 25, 11, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Fitly spoken assumes the right time. It's considerate of all the factors, all the circumstances of this conversation and what's going to happen. That's what love does. It considers not only the proper words to say, but when to say them, how to say them. It considers the hearer. It's not simply, let me get this off my chest. It's, how can I use what's in me and the words coming out of my mouth to give you more grace than you had before our conversation happened? 
That's what love does. Love listens, it considers, and then it speaks, rather than blustering out whatever pings into his head. How are we at this? Would people look at you and say, man, they are always so considerate. They're so kind, humble, and worried about everybody else around them. They're thoughtless of themselves. Are your words seasoned with salt like Jesus commended? Or are they just plain salty, which Scripture condemns? Are we considerate of others when we speak, when we act, or do we just impulsively react? Further, do you consider it your Christian duty to dress and act consistently with love? It's not necessarily sinful for you to wear this or to wear that, but love goes deeper than mere sin or not sin. Love goes deeper than clear black and white. Love is concerned not with what's my right to wear, but what's my clothing going to do to the people around me. It's not what I can get away with. That's what the legalist is concerned with. What is my right? What can I do? And what can they not tell me I can't do? But love is instead other-centered. Rudeness is me-centered, self-centered. Rudeness is unconcerned with its impact, unconcerned with giving grace to others, unconcerned with seeking the good of those around them, but love is deeply aware of how words have effects and how timing and how we speak, how we act, how we dress should all be marshaled together to impart grace. When you look at rudeness like that, we can see that we all have a ways to go. We've all been taught manners, like saying please and thank you, and those are good things as far as they go. But what you can't simply be taught is to have a heart that is joyfully considerate of others, that joyfully seeks to put others ahead of you because they're more important than you. That's because we're all born proud. We don't have to be taught to put me first. That comes naturally. In fact, Paul, speaking in Romans 3, quoting a bunch of psalms, talks about the disposition of every man and woman from birth. Right? Instead of considering our words and choosing words that impart grace, he says their throats are open graves. So that means instead of imparting grace in life, we reveal death and decay when we open our mouth. Instead of choosing our time, the time of our words with care, like apples of gold and a setting of silver, he says this about mankind, that the venom of asp is under their tongues, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. See, we're all from birth, the fool that shows up at dawn with mouths full of curses. And rather than being considerate of how our behavior, how our actions, how our dress impacts others, and how we might show love to all those around us, Scripture teaches us that man has feet that are swift to shed innocent blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, Paul said. So the fruit of our actions is not grace to all those around us. It's the opposite. It's death. It's curses. That's because we're all bent in on ourselves. We are unconcerned with the well-being of everybody else. This world is about me, myself, and I. That's the status of every person, every son and daughter of Adam. We are gifted sinners, centered on ourselves, unconcerned with doing good to those around us. And what else does Paul say about this tendency? Well, he says later in Romans that the wages of this is death. That means that we have worked 
and the just wages we are to be paid, the paycheck that we have earned is death. We all deserve to die for rudeness. When I look at that text the first time, or when you, you said, oh, love is not rude, well, that's kind of like trivial. Rudeness is kind of a low bar sin, right? Rudeness puts people in hell. Eternally judged and punished. But Paul doesn't stop with the universal condemnation of mankind, praise God. He also explains the good news of Jesus. And you see that the God of the Bible is love, and part of being love is being considerate. Rather than being rude in his speech, God chose to speak words that impart grace. In fact, his word to mankind is the word of his Son, the eternal word of all grace. John 1 tells us that the eternal word was with God and was God, and that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then it says, law was given through Moses, but grace came to us through Jesus Christ. The word was spoken from heaven, and grace came to him. In love, God considered us, and he chose to speak a word to us, a word that brings with it heaven's worth of grace. That's the good news of Christ's coming. The word put on flesh and always spoke out of love. He chose the right words to say and never once spoke an unkind, inconsiderate word, never said a single thing that was unloving. But God didn't just send us the right word, though he did that. He sent us the right word at the right time. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus could have come right after Genesis 3. Right after Cain killed Abel, he could have come. Right after the Exodus, he could have come. At Mount Sinai, he could have come. But he didn't. He could have come right after the, old, the last Old Testament prophet, but he didn't. God waited 400 more years with silence. In fact, Scripture then says that Christ came in the fullness of time. When the time was right. When God's plan had ordained for him to come. That's when he came. He didn't speak haphazardly. He didn't show up at the right time. He doesn't do anything haphazardly. In fact, he considered this word from the beginning of time. He knows the end from the beginning. And he knew the precise moment to speak the perfect word to the world, thereby making his speech like apples of gold set in silver. Lastly, unlike the fool that is rude, who acts and who dresses without concern of anybody else around them, Christ was considerate of his actions and his dress and how they impact others. But unlike the rude person who is immodest and flashy and wants all the attention, Christ was the opposite. Scripture says that Christ had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Isaiah 53. He should have justly been clothed in the finest robes on earth, crowned with the most beautiful crown, but instead he was content to be stripped naked publicly humiliated, crowned not with gold, but with thorns. All because he considered his bride more important than himself. A rude bride. An inconsiderate bride. What, what kind of love is this? Where do you see this love? Anywhere else? Nowhere. I can't be bothered to serve my friends this well. And he came and did this for his enemies. I hope you marvel at the depth of his love. That's, I'm sure, what compelled Wesley to write, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? 
Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, and can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Doesn't it warm your heart that while you were an enemy, a sinner against him, he came and bought you in love? No man would do this for his enemies. No king would certainly do that for his subjects. No president would do that. No emperor would ever do that on earth. But Christ did it. What more could you want in a, in a king? There's, there's, there's nothing better. There's no way to improve upon the love that has been shown. He not only considers you in your helpless state, but he personally bears your punishment, pays your debt, pays for you to be in glory. Trust in this Christ. Believe in Him. Consider your state if you are yet still unbelieving. Consider your condition, your sure and certain judgment that is coming. But also consider Christ. The Christ of the Scriptures. He's the perfect, loving Word of God spoken at the right time to redeem the ungodly, which is you. And all that He requires is faith. Bending the knee. Believing in Him. And if you do that, you'll be the recipient of His love. You will know His grace. And He'll speak another word of love to you, which is His Holy Spirit. The Father and the Son will send together the Spirit of God into your heart to help you grow in love for others. You'll grow in your ability to consider them instead of being rude. You'll grow in love towards others rather than loving yourself. You'll grow in humility rather than being boastful and arrogant. I think there's a reason why one of the first fruits of the Spirit is love. When the Spirit gives you a new heart, you will bear new fruit, and the first fruit is love. You won't do it perfectly, but you'll grow in it as He teaches you more and more about the love of Christ. And so won't you trust in Christ? Don't stay stuck in your sin. Come to Christ and be forgiven and filled with the love of God so that you may grow in your ability to love others as well. And for us believers, we must seek to put off selfishness and rudeness. Not simply seeking to be well-mannered and gentlemanly, gentlewomanly, so that people will think well of us. Rather, we must think much of Jesus and how he spoke and when he spoke and how he carried himself, how he dressed himself, how he related to other people. And we see in all of those how he considered others and their interests as more important than his own. Those who had nothing to offer him. No way to improve him, and yet he died for them. As you consider his love, you'll find motivation to consider others as more important than yourselves. The magnitude of his condescension will melt the arrogance in your heart and help you to condescend to others, to bow down and help and serve others. You'll choose to Use words that impart grace rather than curse. To say them at the right time rather than in your own timing. To joyfully dress and behave as if your appearance has consequences in the lives of others. All because of Christ. I'll close with this. It's been said that the measure of a true gentleman is not in how he treats kings, but in how he treats servants. And that makes sense because many people out of self-interest will treat kings with great kindness. And they'll get home and they'll whip and lash the subjects, the servants. 
But a true gentleman, a truly loving person who is not rude, will treat his servants, his subordinates, with love, even though they have nothing to offer him. And if that's true, that a measure of a man's behavior is in how he treats his servants, then what does that say about Jesus? Who served his servants by becoming one himself and dying in their place, so that the master died in the place of the servant, giving the servants life instead. That's love that no mere, no mere man can match. And that love, the love of Christ, we have in another way. In the table tonight, where Christ's love to His servants is seen. His body was broken and His blood was shed for you. For rude sinners. See how considerate He was. How He considered us in our woeful state. And came down to rescue us. If you're like the saints in Acts 2, devoted to the apostolic teaching, to the fellowship of the saints, to the breaking of bread at the table and prayers then we invite you to join us at the table. But if you're not united to Christ in His body, then let these plates pass. Be made right with Christ and then join us. I'll pray and then we'll take together. Father, we praise You for Christ, the Word of God Himself who was spoken at the right time to redeem the ungodly. The Word of love and grace that imparts all grace in our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would not forget that Word that we would know Christ, that we would cling to Him, that we would remember His broken body and His shed blood, that He died in the place of sinners, and that all we have to do is but receive. And by receiving, we have life. Bless these elements, Lord, as we come to the table. In Christ's name, amen. Table servants.